So let's cultivate our motivation. And for the last few weeks, we've been thinking about impermanence and death. So that's always a very good antidote to calm our mind down and help us to pause and think about the situation. So it works in many kinds of situations. Sometimes uh, we're having difficulty with a friend and we want our friend to change and we're pushing and pushing for them to change and it's creating a lot of arguments. And this happens with family members too. We want a parent or a child to change in a certain way. And when we contemplate impermanence and death, it can really settle the mind because at the time we die is getting them to change really going to be the most important thing for us. What about changing our own mind? What about uh, calming our own mind, our own opinion factory? So that doesn't mean that we don't point things out to people. It can be helpful if we have a close friend to point something out to them when it's done with a compassionate attitude. But I'm talking about when we have an agenda for somebody else. And we're kind of demanding change. Uh, Really, in the long term, that's not so important. Because anyway, we can't change them. They have to see the situation for themselves and then modify their behavior and their thoughts. Contemplating impermanence and death also works very well when we're really offended and angry and upset about something. Again, to ask ourselves, at the time I die, is this really something that's going to be important to me? The big scale of all my lives in samsara, the fact that I have a precious human life now, with the opportunity to practice, is my anger, my feeling of being offended or whatever, is that really something in the big scheme of things that needs attention? Or is it something that I notice? And then I say, you know, this is the nature of samsara. (laughs) This is my own karma ripening. And then drop it and restore our own mind back to a peaceful state.
So there's many more situations in which contemplating impermanence and death is useful. But maybe that is something that will give you some ideas now. And hopefully it will propel us in our endeavors to generate bodhicitta. Because at the end of the day, generating bodhicitta does make a big difference. And it is important for ourselves and others. And so, as His Holiness instructed us yesterday to generate bodhicitta again and again, let's do it again and make it our motivation for sharing the evening together. So I just saw a video clip uh, online that was making me think about, you know, our wanting to change other people. So there were two video clips. There was one by, I think his name is Godal, Godal. He's the guy in charge of the NFL. And uh, as you remember, when... Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed took a knee. They were blasted, and Kaepernick has never been a, you know, they've kind of blackballed him in the NFL. And uh, so these people who own the teams were highly critical of the black players, and of course the dear president jumped in and said that they were disrespecting the troops and the flag and everything like that. So here's a video clip after everything that's been going on the last 10 days with Goodell um, apologizing and saying, we, you know, as the NFL, we should have listened to the African-American players a lot sooner. And in it, he offered condolences to the families, of course, who, with the, where their relatives died. And he said, you know, we, we should have listened. And we're sorry we didn't. And we really encourage people to, um, to protest now and to speak up against racism. So that's a big thing. Then, the second clip was a video made by some of the NFL players. And I don't know, I think they may have made it before he said this, 
And maybe this was one of many things that prompted Vidal to, to say this. But it was this beautiful clip of the the um, players, lots of them. I don't know, there must have been 15, 20 players in the, in the group. And you know how they do clips with going one person after another, each person saying part of a sentence? Mm. And so they had all these guys talk about, you know, we want the NFL to acknowledge what is happening to African Americans. And then each one of them said, you know, I, the one said, I'm Trayvon um, Martin, one said, I'm Tamir Rice, one, I'm, I'm George Floyd, one, I'm Eric Gardner. And it went through really quickly, you know. And it was very powerful the way they did it. And one other thing that Goodall said when, when he was making that statement was without the African-American players, we wouldn't have an NFL. Yeah? So this is, this is progress. Of course, you know, it comes painfully. It takes a long time. You know, people can only change when the causes and conditions come together you know, to cause them to, to change their minds and, and open up. Um, and that's why it's so important, I think, to, to hear, to be patient, you know, and to realize that we can give people information, we can suggest. But people have to come to things themselves. And when they do, that's when it's really powerful. And I know you know, this guy, because he's in charge of the, the big guy in the NFL, what he says will have repercussions, yeah? And, you know, now he's saying it with some kind of wisdom, with some kind of awareness. So, yeah. So I thought that was good. And on the part of the players, you know, that they, they kept at it, they spoke up. And now the real test is, are they going to give Colin Kaepernick a job, you know, a, an opportunity to play again? Because he was so criticized for taking a knee. But now, taking everybody's taking knees. There, there was Justin Prudeau who knelt down and took a knee. You know, it's really getting kind of amazing. And, um, you know, different uh, people from the National Guard and so on. So, uh, you know, we have to wait and see what happens and, of course, hope for the best. But something is changing. At the same time, what is so interesting, I'm sorry, I know you don't want me to talk about politics and permanent events, but this is on my mind because it is painful for me. Okay? So, um, you know, they've been sending out the National Guard and the military police in D.C. and the regular police in New York 
And of course, so much of the the uh, protests are about systemic racism and police brutality. But what we're seeing in the uh, you know the protests is some of the people, uh, the police and so forth, really paying attention and listening. And we're seeing also a lot of police brutality. So there it is, the thing that the people are protesting against is being enacted again against them. So it's going to be quite interesting what happens. Um, Yeah. De Blasio and Cuomo uh, are getting criticized a lot for New York police tactics. They're doing this thing that's called kettling. And remember I told you the other day about uh, reading about these people who were protesting in D.C. and they were tr uh, trying to leave and the pol some police were following them, but they got to the intersection and they were cornered, you know, and then somebody who owned a house said, come in here, and a hundred of them went in there. But what's happening, this thing called kettling, is they're, you know, the police or National Guard stand behind, and they're uh, pushing the crowd in one direction, but they have another group of police or National Guard coming from the other way. So they get it, so that people can't leave. They've been telling people to leave, and then they actually block the exit. So they say that, you you know, one reason you do this is to present, prevent looting. I'm not quite sure how, but what's happening is it's trapping people. And then, of course, when the police are pushing from two directions, there's a very big chance of having violence. You know, even the protesters want to leave. So there was this one clip of uh, a man. Uh, he turns out he's 75 years old, and he was walking towards a whole line of police or National Guards. No, it must have been police, New York police. Special Forces Police in Buffalo, New York. He was walking towards them, and he started to, like, talk to them. I don't know what he was saying. And one of the guys, the police officers, shoved him. He fell flat on his back, hit his head. He's 75 years old. Was unconscious with blood coming from his ear. And the police walked right past him as he was lying on the ground. So the commissioner, whoever is in charge of police in Buffalo, um, immediately took uh, two of the officers off and put them on administrative leave without pay or something like that. And the other 57 guys in the special forces quit because they didn't like the way their two comrades were being treated and disciplined. Wow. 
Yeah. So you have that on one hand, and then you have, you know, there another cliff of there was one black actress who was really talking to some of the, the National Guards guys. You know, come protest us, come protest. You've got to come and march with us, march with us, march with us. And the, the guy, you know, he's a young guy. He's explained, well, I have orders. I have to stay here, you know, <laughs> and do something with the crowd. Otherwise, you know, I go, but I have orders. And then finally she said, well, will you at least take a knee? And he took a knee. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's so interesting when you think about karma and you think about afflictions and you think about how people want to be happy and yet create the cause for their own misery. And you think about how people can change when you least expect it. So it's, um, you know, this is an intense display of samsara. Yeah? Um, quite amazing. So, that's why we generate bodhicitta. Because <laughs> bodhicitta is the only way to keep yourself sane in the middle of all of this. You know? And to try and have compassion attitude towards everyone, even if you don't like their beliefs, you don't like their actions, you know, how to have compassion for that, the person. So, that's our motivation. <laughs> but there's a lot to learn. <laughs> So, we're in foundation of Buddhist practice. We've, like I said, we've been talking a lot about death and impermanence, and before that, about the eight worldly concerns, because uh, at the time of death, our body, possessions, and friends and relatives aren't going to be of any benefit to us, but the Dharma will be. And the eight worldly concerns are what distract us from practicing dharma and make us uh, create a lot of negative karma involved uh, our, with our body possessions and friends and relatives. Okay, so now we're on the section on other life forms, page 213. Yeah, looking beyond this life. So, you know, my experience at, at His Holiness's teachings is that he doesn't talk for a very long time about the lower realms. You know, when he's giving uh, a, a long and oral transmission about a text, he'll read that section, of course. I remember when he was doing the uh, 18 Lam Rim texts, and there's a big section on it in... in um, Pabonkar Rinpoche's uh, text. And so, of course, His Holiness read it. He's giving the loom on it, you know. But it wasn't like he 
stopped and put a lot of emphasis on on that. Okay. But here he says, after death, the continuity of our consciousness does not stop. Although the core sense consciousnesses cease as we go through the death process, the extremely subtle mind continues to the next life. What kind of life will we have in our next rebirth? We don't need to ask a fortune teller. (laughs) The Buddha explained that according to the law of karma and its effects, virtuous actions bring fortunate rebirths as humans or celestial beings or devas, whereas non-virtuous actions lead to unfortunate rebirths as an animal, hungry ghost, or hell being. Since none of us wants an unfortunate rebirth, it behooves us to create the causes for a good rebirth now. So while His Holiness doesn't go through all the details of the lower realms, like it is in some texts and how some uh, lamas emphasize it, His Holiness is really big on talking about cause and effect, if you haven't noticed You know, he's always talking about dependent arising, you know, in all its different forms. And the first form is causal dependent. So here he's bringing it up again, you know, in the context of what kind of rebirth are we going to get? Well, you know, there's no external God who's going to send us to heaven or hell. There's no external being who makes up the rules or who creates heaven or hell. Everything comes about due to our own actions. So this also, if you'll remember Geshe Tapkela's teachings on chapter two of Pramnavartika last year, how we went through all these different refutations of you know, how karma is created and what can carry the karma and so on, and how it all boils down to cause and effect and place, you know, our actions placing seeds on our mind stream, which ripen in what we experience. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, uh, that's the air we live in. That's the air we breathe is that air of, causal dependence. And so we're the ones who create our own future through our actions. And that's the important point to remember when we talk about other life forms. You know, I don't think it's so, you know, you can visualize the lower realms and the suffering in them and all. But the point is how you're supposed to come out is with a renewed determination to create virtue and abandon non-virtue. That's the point of the meditation, not to frighten us, okay? But to make us aware of a possible danger so that we can counteract it before it happens. So we may wonder, we know that that humans and animals exist, But do the other classes of beings actually exist? Is the description of the unfortunate states to be taken literally? 
neither reasoning nor direct experience is able to establish the non-existence of these realms. Okay, so His Holiness always says, you know, you can't just say something doesn't exist because I don't see it. You have to be able to establish its non-existence. For example, by saying, if it existed in this and such a context, it would be visible, but it isn't visible, so therefore we can infer it doesn't exist. Okay, but what he's saying here is neither reasoning nor direct experience is able to establish the non-existence of these realms. Using reasoning to establish their existence is difficult, okay? And we ordinary beings do not have the clairvoyance to determine whether such rebirths exist. In this case, we can rely on reliable scriptural quotations, okay? So here he's making an appeal of the different kinds of uh, valid minds, to an inferential mind and of the different kinds of inference, inference by scriptural authority. Yeah. We can also use a type of logic that I was talking uh, about, I think it was last week in this class or in another class I was talking about, about how our mind can be like the state of mind of a being in another realm and so to me, it makes sense that that state of mind can manifest as the world you live in, you know, the, the karmic appearance to you according to your mental state. But that that it's not just some vague karmic experience that you can identify. But when you're born there, it's as real as our human karmic experience is to us right now. Okay. Sutras in all three Buddhist canons, Pali, Chinese, and Tibetan, speak of other life forms in the universe. In the Jewel Sutra, the Ratana Sutra, uh, one of the most well-known sutras in the Pali canon, the Buddha addresses spirits who are making trouble for the Lichavi clan, okay? So actually this was, uh, um, yeah, that's the Ratana Sutra. One of the sutras where, where the Buddha talks about the uh, qualities of the three, the three jewels was because the, there were these spirits who were causing trouble in the town of the Lichavis, and they add, the people there asked the Buddha to come and, you know, please help us. So he taught this sutra that talked about the qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma, and Sangha. And by the power of teaching that sutra and the power of the virtue of the three jewels, uh, the spirits stopped harming the people. Yeah. And so the Ratana Sutra is one of several sutras that uh, Pali practitioners chant for auspicious reasons or, you know, uh, often if somebody, if they're on Pindapat and somebody gives them food, then they'll chant one of these short sutras of auspiciousness. So this is one of them. The Metta Sutra is another one, 
Yeah, when you generate metta, it seems like the, uh, you know, the spirits can't handle it. <laughs> yeah. I saw something very interesting one time. And of course, I don't know what actually was going on, but I had a friend who was really severely, severely depressed. And um, and so we were talking, and I started chanting the, uh, the Long Chenrezig Mantra. And as I was chanting it, he just started sobbing. And I got the feeling as if, you know, maybe that he had been experiencing some spirit hindrance that then couldn't take the sound of the mantra of compassion. Yeah. And His Holiness tells the story. I don't know if it's in here or not in this chapter. Um, when they, uh, he was going somewhere and they were putting him up at a hotel and uh, there was one room in the hotel that people had thought was uh, haunted or there were spirits or some negative energy. So without telling His Holiness, they put him in that room. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's the, the well-respected guest and what do you do? You put him in the worst room. <laughs> But they did it because they thought that him staying in the room might, you know, settle whatever energy there was in there. So he stayed in the room, and he was okay. And after he left, then the people in the hotel told him what they had done and why they had done. And they said afterwards, nobody complained about that room anymore. Okay, so it's kind of like the power of virtue that turns away harms. And they, they tell a story about, in the, about the thought training teachings, too, um, about one monk who was asked to come uh, because some people were experiencing all sorts of hindrances and so on. And... Uh, I guess they were expecting a puja, you know, because when there's a puja and chanting and there's, you know, bells and drums and deep chanting and long horns and, you know, it's like you think something's really going to go on. Yeah. Well, this monk came and he just sat there and closed his eyes and put his Zen kind of over his head and meditated. And then afterwards, the hindrance was gone, and the people said, well, what in the world are you doing, you know? And he was doing the taking and giving meditation. Yeah. And so somehow, you know, the, the, um, some of these other life forms, I mean, they, they can feel what's going on. And... Uh, you know, these are stories about spirits, but I think also about animals. You know, there's the story of uh, <laughs> Devadatta, you know, the Buddha's uh, cousin, who set a wild elephant out, released a wild elephant, uh, in the hopes that the elephant will trample the Buddha and kill him because 
Devadatta wanted to take control over the Sangha. Yeah, so if you think you have bad relatives, you know, <laughs> look what the Buddha had to go through. So this elephant is charging at the Buddha, and the Buddha sits there and meditates on metta, on loving kindness. And by the time the elephant gets in close proximity to the Buddha, he kneels down. Yeah, so the story goes. Yeah, so it's just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, the Sutra of the Fools and the Wise Men. Okay, this, I know this Sutra is, uh, it's in the Pali tradition, and there's, I think, another version in the Tibetan tradition. Um, speaks of rebirth as hell, animal, and deva or celestial beings. And the Sutta of the Divine Messengers uh, describes hell beings in detail. So it's talking about different kinds of living beings uh, throughout the Pali canon and, of course, in the Tibetan and Chinese canons as well. But if you have difficulty accepting spiritual quotations... I recommend remaining undecided yet open-minded. Yeah? You don't need to come out and say this is a bunch of hogwash or a bunch of stuff designed to frighten people. Um, You know, just kind of leave it on the back burner. But be open-minded and continue to study and practice the Buddhist teachings Implementing what is useful in your life and leaving the rest aside for the time being. However, if you say, I don't believe that other realms exist, consider the I that states this. Is that I omniscient? Is whatever that I thinks always accurate? This is a very good technique for any strong opinion we hold or any judgment we hold, you know, about certain people, about our interpretation of a situation, about other people's motives, to stop and ask ourselves, that I that really believes this, you know, is it omniscient? Yeah, is it always accurate? That brings some humility to the situation. Personally speaking, although I do not take the descriptions of the hellish states in the treasury of knowledge literally, I believe the possibility that such states exist is real. From my own experience, I know that when the mind is disciplined and its positive qualities enhanced, Having special experiences is possible. Similarly, when the mind is undisciplined and obscured by negative tendencies, suffering and problems occur. By seeing the interrelationship of the mind and our experiences, I have an inkling that other life forms, both those in pure lands and hellish states, exist. Okay, there he is, causal dependence. Hmm? 
In some cultures, people accept the existence of spirits and hungry ghosts, and some people even report seeing them. Although this is uh, not generally the case in the West, some Westerners talk about UFOs and report being visited by beings from outer space. I remember one time talking to somebody. I was leading a retreat at Tushita, and she came to talk to me. And she was talking about UFOs landing and those beings coming and talking to her and the whole thing, you know. And I just listened because it was like she was telling me, you know, there's a cup here and a recorder there. And and then I was talking to Ruth Sonam, Geshe Sonam Renshin's translator, and I told her about what this woman had told me. And Ruth's comment was, maybe this is, uh, you know, in ancient times people talked about spirits. Maybe in modern times this is how they talk about beings that they can't identify in any other way, you know, as UFOs. And I know recently in the paper, they've been releasing some kind of, I don't know, stuff from military things, because I can't read it, it's the screens, you know, where they've detected objects in the sky and they don't know what they are. Okay. But anyway, I don't know, I don't know, don't know this, I don't know that, but, you know, for sure what I do know, or what I believe very strongly, <laughs> is <laughs> that this earth is not the only place where life exists. The universe is too big, and planet earth is too small for this to be the only place where there's sentient life. Yeah. And it, you know, they're always looking to see if there's water in other places because water means there's the possibility of life. But there may be places where people don't need water to stay alive. Why do, you know, our bodies need water, but somebody's karma could create a body, you know, that doesn't look anything like ours and doesn't depend on water. So we don't know, okay? In other cultures, people who have similar experiences to this UFO describe them as encountering spirits or hungry ghosts. In Tibet, some people had a special capacity to see some of these spirits that are not normally seen by people. One of my childhood bodyguards could do this. Interesting. Yeah, many people have told me stories, you know, like this. We may not believe in the existence of other classes of beings because we do not see them. But once we see them, we will have already been born there, and it will be too late. <laughs> yeah. Therefore, <laughs> although we may not be convinced that hell beings and hungry ghosts exist, 
I recommend provisionally accepting their existence because doing so will make us more mindful of the consequences of our actions before we do them. Should such rebirths exist, we do not want to create the causes leading to them. On the other hand, if such rebirths do not exist, we have not lost anything by refraining from destructive actions. Very true, isn't it? Yeah. We know the animals exist and can observe animals' lives. They are clouded by ignorance, and many are exploited by human beings or killed for food or hides. You know, and we see that now, you know. I mean, not, o- not only slaughtering animals for, to feed them to human beings, but now during the pandemic when they can't get the meat to market, just slaughtering the animals because they don't want to feed them because that costs money. Yeah. Domestic pets may have comfortable lives, but they are incapable of studying, thinking about, and meditating on the Dharma. If we try to teach our pet cats the value of abandoning killing, they cannot understand at all. True. It's hard enough getting human beings to understand the value of not killing, and they can understand the words. Yeah. We also see people and events right now that resemble life in these other states. Some human beings act worse than animals, inflicting harm and suffering on others far beyond what any animal would do. Consider those who ran concentration camps during World War II, those behind the Cultural Revolution, and those conducting terrorist activities internationally that human beings inflict such harm on other human beings leaves us stunned. We cannot find any suitable explanation for such horror. Yet we know that it is a reality. Likewise, we may not easily believe in the existence of unfortunate states and the suffering experienced in them. But those exist. Since powerful destructive actions produce strong suffering in future lives, it makes sense that human beings who inflict great pain on others would be born in unfortunate states. Not because anybody's punishing them, but just when you plant sunflowers, you get sunflowers, and when you plant Chili peppers, you get chili peppers. In the Sutta uh, to the Dog Duty Ascetic, the Buddha speaks in a compassionate yet matter-of-fact way about the possibility in unfortunate state, uh, possibility of rebirth in unfortunate states as a result of our destructive actions and shows that this can be prevented. As did many others, this is the story in the sutra, two ascetics in ancient India acted like animals 
thinking that it would bring them fortunate rebirths. In other words, act like an animal now when you're a human being. You use up your animal karma and you'll get a good rebirth in the next life. Very strange way of thinking, but there were a lot of ascetics at the time of the Buddha who thought that way. So approaching the Buddha, uh, Saniya acting like a dog and Puna behaving like an axe, ox. <laughs> asked him <laughs> what their future lives would be. The Buddha did not want to answer, but they kept asking him, and so pressed, he explained. Here, someone develops the ox duty, the ox habit, the ox mind. This is what uh, Puna was doing. The ox behavior fully and uninterruptedly. Having done so on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in the company of oxen. But if he has such a view as this, by this virtue or observance or asceticism or holy life, I shall become a great god or some lesser god. That is a wrong view in his case. Because, you know, he's not creating the proper cause. Now, there are two destinations for one with wrong view. I say hella or the animal state. So if his ox duty succeeds, it will lead him to the company of oxen. If it fails, it will lead him to the hellish state. Okay? So this part here may not be so so easy to understand. The Buddha says by this, so somebody who's who's doing his ox duty, behaving like an oxen, and thinking by I'm creating virtue. So by this virtue I'm creating, I'm a great ascetic by the virtue of this asceticism of the holy life that I'm living by acting like an ox, you know, uh, I shall be thinking that I shall have uh, a rebirth as a great God. Okay, so that's definitely a wrong view. So that's why the Buddha says if his ox duty succeeds, you know, he will be born as an ox because he's acting like one. And if it doesn't succeed, he will be reborn in the hellish realm for having such a wrong view about karma and its effects. Yeah, and acting in that way. But what's interesting is these ascetics had faith in karma and its results. Yeah, so at the time of the Buddha, some of these ascetics, they had some pretty wild ideas. But the notion of liberation, which not all of them had the Buddhist notion, but there was the notion of moksha, and the notion of karma, you know, they were prevalent notions in that society. And so they had, you know, some feeling for that. Okay? So these ascetics had faith in karma and its results. And by hearing that their practice was based on wrong views that could lead them to horrible rebirth, they sobbed and had a deep regret for their actions. The Buddha then taught them about karma and concluded 
Thus I say beings are the heirs of their actions. This is a very famous statement in the sutras, that we are heirs to our actions, we are products of our actions. Our actions follow us like the shadow follows the body. So both uh, Saniya and Puna became the Buddha's disciples, and by meditating with strong determination, Saniya became an arhat in that life. Beats being a dog. How fortunate he was to meet the Buddha. You know, and not just meeting the Buddha, he was open to listening. I'm sure many other people would have said, oh, I don't believe what you're saying. But he met the Buddha, he was open to listening, and then he applied the teachings, and he got the good result of our hardship. The purpose of contemplating the suffering of these migrations and the possibility of being reborn there is not to fill us with irrational panic, emotional fear, and immobilizing dread. Rather, it impels us to practice so that we will not create the causes for such rebirth and will direct our energy in a positive direction instead. If we are born as a hell being, hungry ghost, or animal, will we be able to endure their sufferings? Karuna? What do you think? She's fast asleep. Yeah, we may think ignorance is bliss, but in this case, it's not. <laughs> okay. Unpleasant as it may be, contemplating such topics is essential because we can act to prevent these types of rebirth. If we do not think about them and consequently do nothing to prevent them, once we are born in those unfortunate states, very little can be done to ease the suffering. So this, too, is why it's so important. Don't wait until your relatives die to do puja for them. Teach them about virtue while they're alive. Encourage them to do virtuous actions, to be generous, to, you know, help them with their temper, uh, encourage them to be kind while they're alive. Yeah, much better than waiting until after they die. Of course, some of our relatives may not be open to hearing things, in which case you just have to depend on, you know, doing prayers for them after they die. But, you know, give it a try. And just, you know, and not in a preachy way at all, but when there's, you know, causes that they can give to, ways they can be charitable, encourage them to, to be generous. Yeah, if they're angry and there's something you can say that may help them see the situation differently, you know, say that and, you know, help them calm down. Hmm? Thinking that unfortunate migrations are in some faraway place and have nothing to do with us is unwise. None of us knows when we will die. And as ordinary beings without spiritual realizations, 
we have no guarantee that we will not take birth in one of those unfortunate states. Looking carefully at the actions we have done throughout our lives, we see there is a real possibility that we will face an unfortunate rebirth, one where there is not only great misery, but also no opportunity to meet the Dharma. So which is worse, being born in a state of great misery or being born in a state where there's no possibility of meeting the Dharma? And what about having both of them together? Very difficult, yeah. We have the opportunity now with our precious human lives to engage in abundant constructive actions that will lead to future happiness and cyclic existence and the ultimate happiness of liberation and awakening. Please keep this in mind and let it motivate you to live with wisdom and compassion now. Reflect on impermanence and death and make a strong determination to overcome the eight worldly concerns that would impede you from doing this. The Buddha once asked his disciples, which is greater, the little bit of soil under my fingernail or the great earth? They responded that the soil under his fingernail is trifling, whereas the earth is huge. The Buddha then advised them. So too, those beings who are born among human beings are few. But those beings who are born elsewhere than among human beings are more numerous. Therefore, you should train yourself. Thus shall we dwell diligently. Yeah. So have diligence in our practice. Have introspective awareness that monitors our mind, have conscientiousness that values ethical conduct. Yeah. Have you ever heard anything about ordaining, preventing people from going to the lower realms? I mean, if they keep their vows properly? Or is it, are ordained people just as vulnerable to going to lower realms as non-ordained people? Yeah. It depends how you practice, you know, because if, if you break your vows, it's stronger negativity if you don't p- do any purification. But it, if just keeping your precepts, yeah, without, you know, sitting in this room and not killing, then we're creating the virtue of not killing simply by the fact of having the precepts. So the precepts are very strong in, in, help, in terms of helping us to create virtue and also of the karmic results. The uh, keeping precepts really helps counteract the karmic result of habitually doing that negative action repeatedly. Okay. So, uh, you know, that's why taking precepts is such a good foundation for your Dharma practice. You know, it really works with the, with karma, you know, and gives us a, definitely a running start in creating the, the virtue needed for a good rebirth. 
But we have to keep the precepts well. If you don't respect the precepts and you just don't, you know, it doesn't matter, then, you know, create a lot of negativity. One comment and one question. Uh, so Nick Buckner wanted to tell you that thank you for continuing to speak about uh, these issues, the political ones that you started with, and that you are an honorable teacher. And uh, mm -hmm. Kenru from Singapore asks, um, does rebirth in a pure land classify as a human rebirth or as a deva rebirth? It's not a human rebirth, and it's not a deva rebirth in the sense of a desire realm god or even a form or formless realm god. It's a rebirth where you're not uh, born under the influence of afflictions and karma, but you're not free from afflictions and karma either. And you're not free of samsara. Here I'm talking about Amitabha's pure land. There's many different kinds of pure lands, but um, I, I, I know Kenru pretty well. I think he's probably talking about Sukhavati. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, but very good. If we can be reborn in Sukhavati, the land of great bliss, there's so many uh, conducive situations for practice there that makes it very easy to uh, hear teachings, put them into practice, and gain realizations. Yeah. But His Holiness is very adamant. We should not pray to be reborn in uh, uh, in the Sukhavati because we don't want to be reborn in a lower realm. Okay? He says, just thinking about yourself and not wanting to experience suffering yourself is not uh, the suitable motivation for being reborn in Sukhavati. He kind of said it. He didn't say chicken out, but it comes down to that. It's like sentient beings need help and you're chickening out with that kind of attitude. Yeah, so I don't mean to offend any chickens. Um, yeah, but yeah. So it, it really necessitates having a bodhicitta motivation. Okay, the next section is called Fear or Hope at Death. If our lives have centered primarily around the eight worldly concerns, our mind becomes familiar with non-virtue. While dying, attachment to self arises. And wanting security and not suffering, we cling to what is familiar, our body, mind, and so forth. Then fearing that we will cease to exist at death, we crave another body. Okay? So there's cause and effect again, you know. <laughs> we, we just, we're familiar with grasping at the self, so it just appears at death time, you know. If we're familiar with uh, the worldly concerns and non-virtue, that kind of stuff is going to arise at, at the time of death. Yeah, so craving another body because there's great fear that I'm going to cease to exist. Yeah, so what's going to keep me from non-existence? Having a body. And so then we get another thing like this again. You know, 
a flesh and blood body that is going to get old and sick and die. Yeah, and that's because we wanted it. Okay, so we got it again. Um, yeah, now of course we can say a precious human life is very advantageous for practicing the Dharma, and that's very true, but we should really, uh, you know, see the disadvantages of taking rebirth in any samsaric body. Yeah. Yeah, as someone once <laughs> told me, thinking about going through adolescence and teenage years again makes me want to renounce samsara. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In contrast to this panicked fear, if while we are alive we generate a wise fear of death, we will be able to set our priorities wisely and make our lives meaningful. The wise fear is aware of the danger of destructive karma ripening at the time of death and propelling us to an unfortunate rebirth. Okay, that kind of wise fear. Yeah, it's another example of wise fear is when you merge on the highway. Yeah, when you're merging on a four-lane highway and people are going 65, 70 miles an hour, do you just drive straight on, just figuring, you know, oh, whatever happens, happens? No, you are aware of the danger. You're not in panicked fear, except the first few times when you're merging on the highway, when you're learning to drive. Yeah, remember that? How scary that is. Like, oh. Okay, so maybe those times there's panicked fear. But after you get used to it, you know, you're aware of the danger, so you pay attention. So that's what the kind, when they talk about being afraid of lower rebirth, it's not the panicked fear. It means aware of danger, okay? Because when we're aware of danger, then we take care, you know? We are diligent. We are mindful. We prevent, uh, you know, exacerbating the situation or, or creating the causes for suffering, Okay, the wise fear is aware of the danger of destructive karma ripening at the time of death and propelling us to an unfortunate rebirth. It sharpens our mindfulness, motivates us to practice virtue, and enables us to prevent that danger. This fear, in quotes, is similar to the mental state when we merge our car into highway traffic. Aware of the possibility of having an accident, we are cautious, which prevents an accident. Okay, wise fear inspires us to set clear priorities so that we make our life meaningful and do not waste it on unimportant activities. Our life becomes very vibrant and vital as we live each moment fully aware that the only time we can practice the Dharma is now. So instead of getting lost in all sorts of future plans, 
I'm going to go here and do this retreat. I'm going to study that. I'm going to, you know, you're in one retreat planning five years ahead for all the retreats and courses. And meanwhile, you're not meditating in the retreat that you're in. How many of us have done that? Yeah. Okay. The only time we can practice the Dharma is now. Due to practicing diligently, we will be free of fear and regret at the time of death. As the great yogi Milarepa said, In horror of death, I took to the mountains. Again and again, I meditated on the uncertainty of the hour of death. Capturing the fortress of the deathless, unending nature of mind, now all fear of death is over and done. So by have, developing a wisdom fear of death that motivated him to practice, he realized the deathless, unending nature of mind. And through having that realization, now all fear of death and lower rebirth is gone because he no longer is creating the cause for them. Upon seeing a stray horse and an empty chariot, the Buddha's disciple, uh, Mahanama, noted that his mindfulness of the three jewels became muddled. He remembered that he too would die, and although he was a stream enterer and had no reason to fear death, he became concerned about his future rebirth. So a stream enterer on the a uh, Shravaka path is uh, somebody, the first stage of being an Arya. You've realized selflessness directly. Okay, so the Buddha assuaged his fear by reminding him that the virtue he had created will propel his mind upward on the path. So here is what the Buddha said. Don't be afraid, Mahanama. Your death will not be a bad one. Your demise will not be a bad one. When a person's mind has been fortified over a long time by faith, ethical conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom, right here, his body may be destroyed, but his mind, which has been fortified over a long time by faith, ethical conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom, that goes upward, goes to distinction. Okay, so he's explaining to Mahanama, you created the causes, you're going to experience the result. Don't worry about it. Death is a normal part of life, something that we must face as long as we are in cyclic existence. To me, leaving this body and going to the next life resembles shedding old clothes and putting on new new ones. For practitioners who have trained their minds well while alive, the experience of death can be profound and transformative. Our present body feels solid, heavy, and burdensome. In addition, our gross consciousnesses are dependent on the brain, which limits our mental functions. When our mind separates from the body, it is freer and can be utilized more effectively if we are well-trained. 
Practitioners with very deep meditative experience can control their death and the process of rebirth. Although these people are rare, they show us the potential of mind. As mentioned before, my teacher, Kyabje Ling Rinpoche, meditated sitting upright for 13 days after his bodily functions had ceased. Death was joyful and spiritually satisfying for him. Highest Yoga Tantra includes a meditation in which death, bardo, or the intermediate state between one life and the next, and rebirth are taken as the path to the truth body, enjoyment body, and emanation body of a Buddha. In the generation stage, this is done by imagination. By working with the subtlest wind and mind during the completion stage, these three Buddha bodies can be actualized. In my daily practice, I do this meditation at least six times a day to prepare for death making my mind very familiar with the natural process of death. However, if I was in an airplane that is going down, I don't know how I would feel. I am curious to discover how much of what I am currently practicing I will be able to implement at the time of death. I have no doubt that the force of serious training during life complemented by pure ethical conduct, bodhicitta, and some understanding of what emptiness will be beneficial at that time. Okay. So this is a good place to stop. Questions, comments? Cheryl online is asking, if you're born in a pure land, might there be the possibility of getting enlightened quicker due to having teachings so then you're able to benefit others more quickly? Is that your motivation to be born there? But my motivation personally? Yeah, some, someone's someone's motiv motivation. It could be someone's motivation, but His Holiness is saying it has to be wanting to receive teachings and practice so you can become a Buddha and benefit sentient beings. Yeah. Not just, I want teaching so I can practice and get myself out of samsara. Because there are um, hearers, and uh, here are hearts and here are learners uh, in the pure land. Yeah. And it's said that, because yeah, when you are born in Amitama's pure land, there's nine different levels of, of, uh, of lotuses. This is how the travel guide explains it. <laughs> yeah. And if, you know, according to your levels of virtue, uh, you may be born in a lotus that opens quickly, which is good, or a lotus that opens very slowly, and it takes a while for you to get born. The hearers are born in slowly opening lotuses, yeah, because they lack bodhicitta. So, but they are there. And Amitabha, I think, you know, teaches them bodhicitta and gets them going on the bodhisattva path. Mm -hmm. Jana is asking, 
Uh, might sleeping Karuna be a bodhisattva who took a cat rebirth at the Abbey to benefit sentient beings, including serving as a reminder of an unfortunate rebirth to, avo um, to, to avoid motivating us in our practice? Quite definitely. Quite definitely. Before we uh, we had uh, Maitri Karuna Muditanopeka, we had our two original cats, um, Achala and Manjushri. And both of them, the way they died was highly unusual. Yeah. Their bodies did not suffer rigor mortis. Their bodies did not deca start decaying right away. You know, even with Manju, there was a little bit of fragrance, remember? It really made us wonder who these cats were. Yeah. What great teachers they were. Yeah. Yeah. They were very big teachers for us. So, we don't know. Anyway, our four present cats have very auspicious names. <laughs> and may they live up to them. <laughs> it seems to me that um, human arrogance could block us from believing in lower realms. That's a big yeah. barrier because we think, oh, me, you know, I'm always going to have this intelligence. I can go down there and we really don't understand how at risk we are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. And it, it's, it's very true, you know, because the appearance of this life is so strong and because we think that we're, certain attributes about us are permanent, well, I'm intelligent, I'm articulate, I can express myself, I have human intelligence. You know, how can I ever go into being a cat, you know, or a gopher, or a wasp? You know, how can that ever happen? But think of what happens when, um, have you ever been really sick with a fever and been delirious? Yeah, and things appear to you that, and you know, you have no, you're fully conscious and aware, but these things appear quite real and you react to them as if they're real. Yeah. Or think of times when you've been so exhausted and you really can't think straight. Or think of people who you know who were brilliant in their younger years and then get Alzheimer's or, you know, Parkinson's or who knows what that affects them cognitively, you know. It's not like our cognitive abilities are always guaranteed to remain at the, the level they're at now. Yeah. as those of us who keep forgetting names realize. <laughs> I always wonder, why is it that names is one of the first things that you, you know, so many people have trouble remembering names. I'm one of them. But why is that one of the things that you forget first? Someone else asks, is it correct that bodhisattvas go to pure lands but don't achieve enlightenment until they liberate those suffering in samsara? so that even with good karma, they have to dwell in the lower realms? No. 
Okay. Um, if it if bodhisattvas could never become fully awakened until they liberated all sentient beings, then the Buddha would never have become a Buddha. And none of the Buddhas would have ever become fully awakened. Okay, but they are. So the thing is, and this is, is um, there's a, a quotation that sometimes is really misunderstood. Because bodhisattvas may pray to stay in samsara until all beings are liberated. You know, that's the kind of unshakable aspiration that we've been talking about that, you know, may I stay, may I go to the lower realms for the benefit of one sentient being? Yeah, you say, you say that. And, but it's a, a, something that you say that helps increase and strengthen and make your compassion very firm. Okay, but that doesn't mean that before you become Buddha, you have to go to the hell realms, or before you become Buddha, all you have to liberate all sentient beings. Okay, if a bodhisattva, depending on the level of bodhisattva, goes to the hell realms, okay, probably I would think it's probably going to be Arya bodhisattvas that choose to go to the hell realms. Because Arya Bodhisattvas can, they have uh, power over where they're reborn. They can direct their mind to rebirth in a certain uh, environment if they know that they have karma connection to sentient beings there and that those sentient beings are receptive to, to their influence. Yeah. But these Arya Bodhisattvas, when they're born in the lower realms, they don't experience the same suffering that the, that the beings who are born there experience when they're born uh, because of karma and afflictions. Okay, they have a very different kind of experience. Does that answer the question as you understand it? In the sutra that was quoted uh, about the the person who had realized emptiness but was worried about his death. Mm -hmm. Then later in the reading coming up, there's also, I think, um, something like this where the future after death is talked about. And I went and read that sutra, and it has these same five characteristics. Mm -hmm. They were listed there as um, faith, ethics, learning, something or other in wisdom. Yeah, I think it's concentration. Generosity. Generosity and wisdom. Yeah. And I was been thinking about that, um, like even in that one, but more so in the other one, like would it be like the um, wisdom of ethics? No, I think it's some wisdom understanding uh, karma and Mm -hmm. some wisdom understanding selflessness. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe not a full realization, Mm -hmm. But some kind of because they go. The other one talks about wanting to be born in certain mundane situations mm-hmm. and being able to somehow direct that by these five characteristics. It yeah, it could be for people who who um, their aspirations are limited to wanting a good rebirth. Then these through these five things, they can create the good karma that then they dedicate for that worldly rebirth. 
but you can do the same actions motivated by an aspiration to attain uh, liberation or an aspiration to attain uh, enlightenment. And like we were talking, when was it, last night? When did I? Yeah, yesterday morning in the in the uh, uh, Shantideva teachings, that depending what you aspire for, your motivation and what you dedicate for, the same action can ripen in different ways. Yeah. No, they're they're similar. Many of them are similar, but they're not exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that too when I first read them, but uh, I, yeah, I don't think they're exactly the same. Yeah, you have effort and you have concentration, I think, in the five powers. Okay, so we'll stop here.